bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, February 21st, 2012. I'll start today's podcast with an update on the agreement that was reached last week by the Congressional Conference Committee, a committee that was negotiating a long-term extension of the payroll tax holiday. I will also discuss comment letters that were submitted on the VOCA rule, and I'll share a deadline reminder for listeners who do business in Puerto Rico. In our Renewable Energy segment, I'll discuss the ongoing efforts to extend the production tax credit. I'm also going to review the highlights of an audit of the Section 1705 Loan Guarantee Program, remember Solyndra. I'll also share a scheduling update for listeners in Oregon, or those that do business in Oregon. Turning to our Loan Composing Tax Credit section, I'm going to review the provisions of the proposed HUD budget for fiscal year 2013. This would be the President's budget. Next, I'll invite listeners to nominate affordable housing properties for the 18th annual Charles L. Edson Tax Credit Excellent Awards. And then I'll review the findings of two reports that examine the economic effect of the loan housing tax credit in Georgia and New Hampshire. And oh, by the way, I'll also describe the 30% taxes and bond basis boost provision that was included in the President's budget, as promised last week. In our historic tax credit section, I'm going to review the exciting findings of a report about the low historic tax credit recapture rates. I'm also going to discuss state historic tax credit legislation in Minnesota, Rhode Island, and Alabama. And finally, in our new market tax credit segment, while we all await the imminent release of the 2012 New Market Tax Credit Allocation Awards, this week I'm going to take the time to review the latest QEI issuance report. To stay tuned as to the actual announcement of the 2012 awards, follow me on Twitter as well as register for the free breaking news email at the website www.novaco.com. So, if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, I start off by noting that this week the House and the Senate are in recess, or as they prefer, They're in district and state work periods. Last week, however, lawmakers did reach an agreement on extending the payroll tax cut, along with extending unemployment insurance benefits and the so-called doc fix. The extensions go through the balance of calendar year 2012. The conference report itself does extend the payroll tax cut through, as I mentioned, the end of 2012, and it provides as much as 99 weeks of unemployment insurance benefits. That depends on the state. President Obama is expected to sign the legislation this week. Now, I note that while this hasn't got much press coverage, since the bill has a substantial portion that's unpaid for, the nation will now hit its debt ceiling a little bit earlier. Originally, the debt ceiling was expected to be hit around the spring of 2013. Now, some estimates say the debt ceiling 
will be hit around January of 2013. Now, Secretary Geithner has said the debt ceiling won't be hit until significantly after the end of this fiscal year, which is September 30th. And the reason why I mention all of that is when combined with the expiring uh, tax cuts, the Bush tax cuts expired in this year, uh, with the upcoming presidential election, as the debt ceiling, the potential to hit the dates, debt ceiling becomes closer to the presidential election, the debt ceiling as an issue is likely to be raised substantially. So stay tuned on the debt ceiling debate. However, of most interest to listeners is what the conference committee or the conference agreement did not include, what it did not do, and that is extend any additional business tax provisions. Absent from the final deal is an agreement on extending the new market tax credit or extending the 9% housing tax credit floor or extending the renewable energy production tax credit. Now, lawmakers quickly proposed an amendment to extend the production tax credit to a different piece of legislation, which I want to discuss in more detail in the renewable energy section of today's podcast. So there's still legislative action on that front. However, with respect to the new market tax credit and local housing tax credit provisions, there's still some discussion as to what the best next steps are. Supporters and groups that support these programs are expected to regroup in the coming days, and they're going to continue to pursue the extension provisions as soon as possible. Now, I also note, for those of our listeners who develop affordable housing, or housing in general, that during the discussions around extending the payroll tax holiday, there was talk of raising some revenue to pay for the payroll tax holiday extension by further raising fees on FHA loans. Fortunately, such efforts were unsuccessful, but do stay tuned, because since that was used as a revenue raiser here, it's likely to reappear elsewhere. Now, I want to turn to the Volcker Rule. Now, the comment window has closed on the proposed regulations that will implement the Volcker Rule. And as promised, the Longfellow Tax Credit Working Group the New Market Tax Credit Working Group and the Novograd Renewable Energy Tax Credit Working Group each submitted comments regarding the proposed rules. Now, as most of our listeners know from prior podcasts, the key areas where the Volcker Rule could impact the tax credit investing community is A, whether or not banks can continue to invest, B, whether or not banks can be sponsors of investment funds, and C, whether or not banks could guarantee tax credit investments. In addition to guaranteeing tax credit investment, it's still open as to what types of transactions banks could enter into with tax credit investment funds. As you'd expect, the various working group letters all supported the notion and the concept and the interpretation that banks should be able to continue as investors, banks should be able to continue as sponsors, and banks should be able to continue providing guarantees and engage in other what are referred to as cover transactions with respect to tax credit investment funds. If you'd like to review these letters, you can find them online at www.novacode.com. And I invite you to download the comment letters by going to the Hot Topics button and simply click on the link to the Volcker page. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the Volcker Rule, I encourage you to send me an email to michael.novagratic.novaco.com, or if you yourself submitted a letter, I'd be interested in receiving a copy of it and would like to post it to our website. 
And if you're interested in joining the working groups, please contact my partner, Brad Elphick. If you're interested in the New Market Tax Credit Working Group, Mike Morrison heads our Long Building Tax Credit Working Group, and Tony Grapponi heads the Renewable Energy Working Group. Now, before I wrap up, I want to mention an upcoming deadline. And it's a different deadline from prior years. That's why I'm taking the time in this podcast to mention it. You should make sure you know this new deadline throughout your organization. And that's for those who do business in Puerto Rico. Now, the Puerto Rico Internal Revenue Code of 2011 is effective for tax years commencing after December 31, 2010, so it's applicable for 2011. And this version of the code revises the due date of some tax returns. Namely, the deadline for tax returns for calendar year partnerships, special partnerships and and limited liability companies treated as partnerships, is March 15th. That's one month earlier than in prior years. And given today's date, is less than 30 days away. Now, extensions are available, but you obviously need to apply for them. Now, if you have questions about these deadlines, I encourage you to contact my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Atlanta, Georgia office. And then one closing note, a scheduling note. On February 28th, that's one week from today, the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Insurance, Housing, and Community Opportunity is going to hold a hearing on the Department of Housing and Urban Development's fiscal year 2013 budget request. Now, those testifying are going to include Carol Galante. As you know, she's the acting Federal Housing Administration Commissioner. Sandra Henriquez, Assistant Secretary, Office of Public and Indian Housing. And Mercedes Marquez, Assistant Secretary, Community Planning and Development. We'll report on that not in next week's podcast, because obviously it's the same day as when I record the podcast, but we'll we'll report on that hearing the following week. In renewable energy tax credit news, immediately on the heels of the disappointing news that the conference committee agreement, the agreement that extended the payroll tax holiday, on news that it did not include an extension of the production tax credit, U.S. Senators Jerry Moran and Michael Bennett introduced an amendment to extend the wind energy production tax credit for one year. Now, this amendment was proposed for inclusion in a transportation funding bill that's currently under debate. Now, as you know, the tax credit is set to expire at the end of 2012, and if this wind energy tax credit is not extended soon, wind energy development will significantly fall off. The amendment itself would fully be paid for. Now, payment for the extension of the tax credit would be done through delaying an accounting provision from being enacted for one year. Now, this accounting provision is related to the way in which corporations report the amount of interest that's allocated to foreign assets. This provision itself has been delayed three times in the past with bipartisan support. Now, the Senate's likely to take up the bill itself at the end of February, and that's after this week's state work periods. But it should be noted that at the time of this recording, this amendment has not yet been adopted. Now, the Pueblo Chieftain reports that Senator Mark Udall, a co-sponsor of the amendment, has started a bipartisan letter to the Senate's Democratic and Republican leaders urging them to support the amendment. Now, getting the amendment attached to the bill will require a majority vote. Now, in related news, during a February 16th hearing about the President's proposed budget, a hearing that was held by the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, Senator Mark Udall 
pressed Energy Secretary Stephen Chu on the urgency to extend the expiring renewable energy tax credits. Senator Udall asked Secretary Chu about how a failure to extend the production tax credit would impact the future of energy jobs. In his remarks, Secretary Chu said, and I quote, a clean energy standard, a production tax credit, those are mechanisms that can stimulate private sector investment, that can stimulate manufacturing in the United States, close quote. After the hearing, Senator Udall vowed to keep fighting for the production tax credit. Senator Udall said, and I quote, the PTC, along with several other key renewable energy tax credits, is essential to provide certainty to these still-growing renewable energy businesses. We can't afford to let it expire. I'm urging all of my colleagues to join me in fighting to get this done. Now, I'd like to follow up on an item that I mentioned briefly in the February 7th podcast, and that's the results of a 60-day independent analysis of the Department of Energy's Section 1705 Loan Guarantee Program. This uh, report has been released, or this analysis has been released. Once again, thanks, Salendra. The audit found that potential losses from the energy loan programs are likely to be less than those projected by the White House and Congress. Now, the Obama administration ordered the review in October, shortly after Solyndra filed for bankruptcy. The audit itself was conducted by former Assistant Treasury Secretary Herb Allison and did not, I emphasize, did not examine specific award decisions. Rather, its scope included a review of a portfolio of 30 loans that total $24 billion. The Energy Department's estimate of the government's long-term cost of the portfolio, once again, the Energy Department's estimate of the government's long-term cost of the portfolio was $2.9 billion. That's approximately 12% of the face amount of the loans. Now, Allison's audit found that the long-term loss for the portfolio might be about $2.7 billion. That's about $200 million less than the department's estimate. Now, it's interesting to note that in his report, uh, Herb Allison suggested that the department should create a position of chief risk officer to review the chances for default in its loan programs. I'd like to note, though, that this 12% loss rate is, is a fact that's often lost in evaluating the benefits of a tax credit program versus a loan guarantee program. So just think about this 12% loss rate in the future, and we'll obviously be using this as we do some of our analysis in the future on the benefits of tax credit programs versus loan guarantee programs. Now turning to Oregon, going to the state level for a moment, the Oregon Department of Energy recently released a proposed schedule in which they'll be announcing funding opportunities for the energy incentives that were established by HB 3672. The incentive programs were created last year when the legislature eliminated the state's Business Energy Tax Credit, or Betsy. This schedule includes proposed funding announcement dates for 11 energy incentives, including six conservation energy tax credits, a renewable energy tax credit, and a biomass credit. The schedule indicates the month in which each opportunity for the various projects will be published. I should say each opportunity to apply for the benefits will be published. Opportunity announcements, they're called, will include details about whether the credits will be issued on a first-come, first-served basis or whether or not they'll be competitive. The proposed schedule, as well as program eligibility requirements, can be found online at www.oregon.gov 
backslash energy. The Oregon Department of Energy also said it would be putting out frequently asked questions for the programs, an FAQ about the programs. If you yourself have questions, you can send an email to energy.incentives at odoe.state.or.us. Now, if you're interested in applying for energy incentives in Oregon, I would encourage you to contact my colleague, Nicolo Pinoli. His number is 503-535-2815, and he heads up our Portland, Oregon office. In local housing tax credit news, the Obama administration did propose its budget for fiscal year 2013, and as promised last week, I said this week I'd examine what the proposal holds for HUD programs. Now the first question, the top line question, ought to be, did the budget go up or down? Is more or less money being spent on the HUD budget? And as can often be true in accounting, it depends on how you view the question. For instance, the budget does propose spending $44.8 billion on HUD programs. Now, this $44.8 billion on HUD programs is a 3.2% increase over fiscal year 2012 levels. That's $1.5 billion more. However, the administration does propose that it's going to generate over $4 billion more from its operations of the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA. As such, once you net the increase in HUD programs with the extra $4 billion in revenue from the FHA, total discretionary outlays actually reflect a 7.6% decrease from the $38.3 billion HUD appropriation provided in fiscal year 2012. So basically, on a gross basis, it's a 3.2% increase. On a net basis, net of FHA, it is a 7.6% decrease. Now let's turn to the individual programs. Housing choice vouchers are up by 1%. Homeless assistance is up by 17%. And Section 202 funding is proposed to be increased by 27%. No, they're not all increases. The project-based Section 8 program, a pretty substantial portion of the budget, down 7%. Section 811, Housing for Persons with Disability funding, down 9%. Home and CDBG funding would be roughly flat. Now, again this year, the budget does propose $1 billion in new funding for the Housing Trust Fund. Now, of all the proposals included in the budget, the HUD budget, that is, the administration's plan for funding Section 8 project-based rental assistance has raised the most concern among the affordable housing community, and rightfully so. The budget proposes $8.7 billion to renew expiring Section 8 project-based contracts. This is a 7% decrease from the fiscal year 2012 appropriation of $9.3 billion. This decrease represents a reduction in upfront funding on some project-based rental assistance contracts that straddle fiscal years. The administration proposes that some contracts will receive less than 12 months of funding. Now HUD says that the number of contracts that will continue to receive 12 months of funding is a function of how HUD distributes funding across contracts throughout the year. Currently, HUD estimates that it will administer this funding to provide 12 months to approximately 5,300 renewal contracts. That is, 
for contracts that expire during fiscal year 2013 and for multi-year term contracts that have an annual renewal funding cycle occurring during the first quarter of the fiscal year. Now those 5,300 contracts cover approximately 360,000 units or they're about one-third of the project-based renewal portfolio. Once again, these are those that will receive 12 months of funding. Now HUD says that the remaining 10,600 multi-year renewal contracts that cover 739,000 units will be funded for less than 12 months. And this will be based upon their renewal date and be varying degrees based upon their renewal date. In the budget documents, the administration suggests that this change will not, I want to emphasize this, the administration says this change will not reduce or delay payments to landlords, nor will it impact the number of families served by the program. Nonetheless, the affordable housing community is very concerned about the proposal because it does set up a scenario for a funding shortfall. Now, the way in which, or the reason why it won't delay funding is if a particular contract straddles the September 30th fiscal year, HUD is in essence saying that they'll fund this in the next fiscal year, such that it doesn't get counted in this year's fiscal year budget. In essence, it's an accounting uh, point that they're trying to make to save money this year. Now, if you look back, those of you that have been involved in HUD funding for a while will remember that a similar shortfall developed in 2007. And this shortfall did cause significant disruption until Congress provided additional funding in the Recovery Act of 2009. Now, the Housing Advisor Group reported last week that it's addressing this issue with the authorizing committees in Congress and hopes to avoid a rehash of the difficulties realized in 2007 and 2008. Now, if you have any questions about this provision or other elements of the proposed, and I emphasize proposed, HUD budget, I encourage you to contact my partner, Susan Wilson. She's in our Austin, Texas office. Next, I'd like to touch base on the president's budget with respect to this 30% uh, additional basis boost for preservation projects. Now, the president's budget includes a provision that narrowly applies to federal investment protection designated projects. So this provision applies to projects that involve the preservation, recapitalization, and rehabilitation of existing housing, as well as a project in order to qualify has to demonstrate that it has a serious backlog of capital needs or deferred maintenance, and that the project was previously financed with federal funds or benefited from the loan housing tax credit. And I should note also that the project has to demonstrate that because of that federal support, it does have a long-term use agreement in place that limits occupancy to low-income households. So it's a four-part requirement to receive this federal investment protection designation. So why is this useful? Well, there's two provisions in the President's budget, proposed budget, that would treat federal investment protection designated property slightly different. First, if these projects went out and wanted to issue taxes and bonds in order to claim 30% present value tax credits, it would not actually have to issue the bonds. It could actually receive an allocation of bond volume cap and basically you know, tell the government that that volume cap is now being used so the state can't issue it for another purpose. And since it's limited, it does save the federal government some dollars. And then the project itself would then be entitled to these 30% present value credits. Now, this provision would be useful for those projects that have been basically burning 
tax and bond value cap, going through and issuing the bonds, using them during construction or otherwise financing the project, and then repaying them shortly thereafter and using the bonds simply to claim, claim tax credits. It's a way of saying consider it used and we won't have to go through all the administrative costs of actually technically using the bonds. So that provision is nice, but not that significant. The big significant uh, provision would be a basis boost. And essentially, projects that received a federal investment protection designation and received a designated allocation of tax and bonds from a state housing agency would be entitled to an additional 30% boost. What this means is that if a project was already eligible for a 30% boost for being a difficult to develop area or because the state designated them as needing a 30% boost, they could claim another 30% boost. So in essence, qualified basis would go up not 30%, but would go up 69%. Qualified basis would be 169% of what it otherwise would be. This would be a pretty significant benefit to these federal investment designated properties. However, a state's ability to designate properties with this extra 30% boost would be limited to those properties that are financed with the state's volume cap, and that is further limited by a 0.8% limit. So basically, every state could take 0.8% of their volume cap and apply it to these projects. So for instance, California, that would mean there was about $25 million with the bond volume authority. Not that big, but definitely more than uh, nothing. I also note that for smaller states where 0.8% isn't that much in dollar terms, they can carry forward this limit up to five years so they could basically aggregate this 0.8% amount until they got to a critical mass to do one or two projects in their state. I also note that this is projected to cost over $700 million over 10 years. Now, last year, those of you that remember this provision, last year this provision was only 0.4%. It was half the size, but was still estimated to cost the same amount. And most of us saw that last year, saw the 0.4%, and saw the $700 million in cost, and thought that was a high cost scoring. The Joint uh, Taxation Committee agreed and scored it at about half that, and it appears that the Office of Management Budget agreed with that scoring because now they've doubled the program but haven't uh, increased the cost uh, notably. So that's the 30% basis boost provision. If you have any uh, additional questions about it, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Jim Kroger, uh, here in the San Francisco office. You could also contact Thomas Stagg. Once again, this is a proposal. There's no legislative language yet, and we'll have to wait and see if this catches a lot of support in the House or in the Senate. So don't spend too much time on the provision just yet. Turning to the affordable housing tax credit coalition competition, if you have an affordable rental property that was placed in service on or after January 1st of last year, it could be a candidate, or it is a candidate, for the 18th annual Charles L. Edson Tax Credit Excellence Awards. The affordable housing tax credit coalition is now accepting entries for this awards program. This program recognizes exceptional low-income housing tax credit developments. Nominations are encouraged by state allocating agencies, government agencies, national, local, nonprofits, syndicators, investors, and of course, development owners or developers. Now the coalition is going to select winners in six categories. A metropolitan or urban housing category, a rural housing category, a special needs category, senior housing, green housing, and a public housing category. 
each winner and honorable mentions will be recognized this spring at an award ceremony in Washington, D.C., probably the first week of June. Award entries are due April 6th, and technically have to be postmarked by that date, and they should be mailed directly to the coalition. Now, if you want an application, simply go to www.taxcreditcoalition.org. Now I'd like to turn to the states, namely Georgia and New Hampshire, and talk about a couple of LIHTC impact studies. The National Association of Home Builders, or NHB, in January released a report on these states. Now let's start with Georgia. In Georgia, the report was called The Economic Impact of the Housing Tax Credit Program in Georgia, Income, Jobs, and Taxes Generated. Now this report estimates the one-year and recurring economic impact of new family loan housing tax credit units, new elderly loan housing tax credit units, and rehab units. Now, NHB's model includes impacts for income and employment in 16 industries and the state and local government. The study itself covered 1,662 units that were placed in service in 2010 and 11, and that were operating in 2011. This total included 324 new family units, 488 new elderly units, and 850 rehab tax credit units. Now for the largest category, the rehab units, the NHB found that the one-year economic impacts in Georgia was $44.2 million in income for Georgia residents, $7.7 million in taxes and other revenue for the state and local governments, and over 500 jobs. Annually recurring impacts of the rehab units included 291000 in residential property taxes. Now similar breakdowns are provided for the effects of the new family units and the new senior units as well. And in addition to the impact summaries, the study broke down the amounts of income, jobs, and taxes into owner's income, wages, and salaries, state and local taxes, and job supported. Those tables can be found in the full report, and it's available for download on the Reports and Research page at www.taxcredithousing.com. Now, before I turn to New Hampshire, I would like to note that Novogratic and Company does do in-plan analyses, which can help develop some of these statistics as well. If you're interested in that for your individual project, simply send me an email to michael.novogratic at novacode.com. Now, a similar report as I mentioned, was also released for the state of New Hampshire. NHB estimated that the one-year economic impact of building 202 senior and family loan tax credit units in New Hampshire amounts to more than $29 million in income for state residents, nearly $4 million in state and local tax revenues, and 433 jobs. NHB released these findings in a report called The Economic Impact of the Housing Tax Credit Program in New Hampshire. This report was commissioned by New Hampshire Housing late last year. The report based its estimates on the average annual tax credit production in the state between 2009 and 2011. The study also found that after the one-year mark, the units will generate more than $8 million in income for New Hampshire residents and support 110 jobs on an annual basis. This report is also available online at www.taxcredithousing.com. In historic tax credit news, a new survey has been released the Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit Recapture Survey, and it reports that historic tax credit transactions have experienced extremely low rates of recapture. The study was done by Novograd & Company, 
and was commissioned by the National Trust for Historic Preservation. The National Trust asked Novogratz and Company to study the frequency and amount of recapture that investors have experienced with the Federal Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit. The survey was conducted of large institutional investors, including national banks and Fortune 500 companies that make direct and indirect investments in historic tax credit transactions. Collectively, the survey's respondents have invested in more than half of the historic tax credits claimed over the past 10 years. Their responses demonstrated that they have experienced extremely low rates of recapture over this 10-year period. Respondents indicated that of the total historics claimed, the recapture rate was less than three-quarters of 1% over that 10-year period. Less than three-quarters of 1%. Now, these survey results are further supported by an analysis of information that was obtained from the Internal Revenue Service, which reflects, during the year 2008, an annual historic recapture rate of 0.07%. That's 0.07%, extremely low recapture rate reported by the IRS for the year 2008. Now, according to the Novogratz analysis, our analysis, this successful track record is attributable to many factors, including large dollar investments from independent third parties, careful screening of properties before uh, development by third party investors, economies of scale and uniform practices in underwriting these transactions and monitoring them going forward, construction and lease-up risk being borne by investors and developers versus the federal government, as well as effective regulatory guidance and enforcement by the Internal Revenue Service. Now, you can find a copy of these survey results at www.historictaxcredits.com. It's very good reading, and I'd appreciate hearing any comments you have. Now, this study in some ways, is a companion to the study Novogratz and Company has done with respect to the Long Housing Tax Credit, which was commissioned by the Housing Advisory Group, and the New Market Tax Credit, which was commissioned by the New Market Tax Credit Working Group. They similarly found low rates of recapture and high efficiency in tax credit programs that are production-based. Now let's turn to the state of Minnesota. Last week, Minnesota Senate Majority Leader Dave Sinjim introduced SF-1881. This bill would extend the sunset of the Minnesota Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit. That's actually a good thing. They want to extend the sunset. And they would extend the sunset from 2015 to 2021. The Minnesota Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit Program was created in 2010 in a stimulus bill. Minnesota was the 31st state in the nation to enact such a state historic tax credit program And it took 11 years of advocacy by various groups, including the Preservation Alliance of Minnesota, the Minnesota Historical Society, and the Building Jobs Coalition in order to get the provision enacted. The Minnesota State Historic Preservation Office released its first economic impact report on the State Historic Tax Credit in November of 2011. The report found that historic preservation catalyzed through the state tax credit is a bright spot in an otherwise challenging economic landscape. The first 14 tax credit projects funded under the program are creating almost 3,000 direct, indirect, and induced jobs. The report also estimated that the tax credit program is returning $9.20 to the state of Minnesota for every $1 spent. Supporters say the bill is a first step 
towards ensuring that the historic tax credit continues its success as a catalyst for job creation and economic development. Currently, unfortunately, there is no House of Representatives companion bill, which would be necessary for the legislation to move forward through the committee and the public hearing process to eventual passage. You can find a copy of the Senate bill online at www.historictaxcredits.com. Now, if you have any questions about working with state historic tax credits, I encourage you to contact my partner, Charlie Ruda. He's in our Boston office. You can also pick up a current copy of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. Charlie's the author of a three-part series about how to work with state historic tax credits. The series began in February of the journal, the February issue of the journal, and it continues in the March and April issues. Also, if you want to contact Charlie directly, simply call him at 617-330-1920. And if you would like to receive a complimentary copy of the Journal of Tax Credits, call 415-356-7960. And then also in related news, lawmakers in Rhode Island and Alabama this month proposed the creation of state-level historic tax credits in those states. If you want to find copies of that legislation, go online to www.historictaxcredits.com. In New Market Tax Credit news, I'll be brief this week as we all await the imminent release of New Market Tax Credit rewards for 2012. We're expecting an award amount of roughly $3.5 billion and awardees of around 70. But looking at the QEI issuance report that was released for the month of January, it was released last week, there is now $3.3 billion, 3.365 to be exact, that's showing as remaining. And as most of our listeners know, substantially all of this amount has projects that have been soft-circled and isn't truly available, which is why we all anxiously await the additional $3.5 billion. The month of January did show approximately $400 million of additional QEI issuance. So that's $400 million of additional dollars available for qualified low-income community investments in low-income communities. In order to stay tuned as to the imminent release of the New Market Tax Credit Awards, you can follow me on Twitter, as well as you can register for free breaking news updates on the New Market Tax Credit. Simply go to www.novaco.com and sign up for the free breaking news emails. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. As always, thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.